Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast on the final full day of the Trump presidency. Donald Trump leaves the presidency at noon tomorrow. Josh Kraschauer from the National Journal joins me on what will really be the final podcast. Well, I think the final podcast of the Trump presidency. So, Josh, I mean, it has been a wild ride, hasn't it? Well, thanks, Charlie. It's an honor to be on on, on this momentous occasion, uh, the final final day, final full day of Trump's presidency. But uh, it's been it's been a long, wild ride. And uh, I don't know if we're, we're fully going to be divorced from Trump even after no. he leaves office. So I, I want to get to some like really deep thoughts and great historical perspective in a moment. But uh, just I, yeah. I want to just look at the moment that we're at right now where, you know, Washington looks like an armed camp. It's got a green zone. I mean, it does look like downtown Baghdad and, you know, from some some pictures. Uh, also, we find out that the my pillow guy uh, has been uh, banned from Bed Bath and Beyond and Coles for his role in the insurrection. I mean, which is like one of these crazy things that, you know, p- people looking back on and say, so the day before. Trump leaves office. You're talking about the my pillow guy, yeah, because that's that's the kind of thing that's going on. Uh, this shouldn't be a big story, but it's still kind of extraordinary that we found out a little while ago that, that Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, will be going to church to pray with Joe Biden before the inauguration. You, you know what I mean, Josh? It, it's just like a, a moment of what was once routine graciousness now goes. Wow, that's that's a little bit. That's almost jarring con- considering, you know, the, the mood right now where the first lady is not uh, meeting with uh, the incoming first lady. Uh, Donald Trump is not even speaking to uh, to Joe Biden. He's not going to the inauguration. There's not going to be a tea. There's not going to be a ride together. So it it, it does feel like kind of a throwback, doesn't it, that Mitch McConnell is actually going to be praying with Joe Biden? Yeah, I mean, you've laid out the two contrasting uh, presidencies uh, and it goes to show that the president in our American system, the president does shape the politics, shapes the culture. The president is the straw that stirs the political drink. And you see with the my pillow guy that, that, that it's sort of the final, final last straw of the Trump administration, uh, empowering some of the biggest crackpots in, in, in American political and business life. And you also see Republicans coming to terms with the reality of a new administration, one that pledged normalcy in American political life. And you see Republicans, McConnell going to church with Biden tomorrow. A lot of Republicans I've talked to almost wanting to black hole the last four years, wanting to forget the the the, the legacy of Trump, forget um, the chaos and, and, and the craziness of the last five years. And, uh, you know, look, we have short memories in in, in America, you know, the, the way the way, you know, we, we consume information, you know, a day is a lifetime. And, uh, you know, Republicans right. are going to try to move beyond what we just have seen. And, and, and Democrats, I, I don't know if they'll let them do that, but that, that'll be one of the big storylines. Well, of course, opening months. Yeah, one of the strange storylines, of course, uh, there's so many unprecedented things that are happening or close to unprecedented, and we've overused that word over the last four years, is that that normally you just close the door on the outgoing president. But of course, you, you have the inauguration and then the beginning of the Senate trial of Donald Trump. So we are definitely not done with uh, with, with Donald Trump. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention that this is also the day you want to talk about symbolism, you know, the collision of, of worlds. Not only is this the final full day of the Trump administration, uh, but we've crossed the threshold of 400,000 American deaths from the coronavirus, 400,000 deaths. Now, this has been projected for some time that you might reach that by the inauguration day. 
but it's an extraordinary, it is just an extraordinary milestone. And just a, you know, you talk about, you know, the, 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 the real, you know, monuments to the failure of this administration. If somebody would have said last April that uh, you'd have 400,000 dead Americans by January 20th, people would have thought, oh my God, that's the most alarmist possible timeline. Yeah, when we look at the history of the Trump administration years from now, uh, the pivot point is going to be the Trump administration, especially Trump himself, his, his absolute uh, unwillingness to grapple with the reality of, of, of what was going on in the country with, with the pandemic. Um, and I think it affected him politically. Uh, I think you could create an alternative history where if Trump even took the crisis remotely seriously, if he didn't talk about it, you know, injecting bleach, if he didn't, you know, refuse to wear masks and, and make that a sign of right wing um, symbolism, you could have seen Trump winning a second term, you could have seen a different outcome in the election. But ultimately, not only did that doom him politically, but it's just created this, you know, alternative right wing uh, ecosystem where facts, reality, uh, even even people like dying, right? You know, in in in, in neighborhoods and communities across the country, was unwilling. It, it, it was unable to change a lot of people's minds because they were stuck in certain certain uh, certain Trump fueled uh, you know alternative reality. Well, that's a great segue, uh, Josh, uh, into the alternative reality. Before we get into our, our, our deep thoughts about all of this, uh, the the alternative reality folks over at Fox News are are not handling this well. And I think one of the big questions was when Trump leaves. Will they try to move back toward, you know, a little bit closer to sanity uh, or are they going to double down because they're under pressure from, uh, you know, the real tinfoil hat folks over at OAN and Newsmax? And do not underestimate, you know, this as a dynamic that you you don't want to be outflanked on on the crazy, apparently on, on the right. So uh, Sean, Sean Hannity last night uh, was uh, was peak Sean in predicting what's going to happen now that the Democrats are moving into the White House. Here's Sean Hannity from last night. Education camps, deprogramming. Okay, according to the press wing of the Democratic Establishment Party and the Socialist Party, you, we, the people, we need to be deprogrammed or canceled or put in re-education camps because of our political opinion and it differs from theirs. Sadly, after decades on TV and radio, let me just tell you what this is really all about. Now, this effort from the left, it is not new. It's only accelerating. I'm not complaining, but this has really been my reality in radio. Okay, so okay, I missed it, Josh. Uh, a lot of, lot of stuff going on. Re-education camps, is, is, is that part of the, the Biden agenda? Well, this is sort of, this before the riot of the last week, the playbook for the Republican Party was to dwell on Democrat extremes, progressive, sure. the yeah. worst. Of, and that, that was sort of the play. I mean, I, and I uh, wrote about it in my column this week. Uh, one of the more pragmatic former Republican members of Congress, you know, thinking about running for the Senate, preparing a playbook where you focus on what he called pronoun progressivism. I, I love, sort of I love that. I love this is Ryan Costello is running in Pennsylvania and he's talking about running against a progressive Democrat who is used the term pronoun progressive. So, first of all, Josh, what is a pronoun progressive? Well, look, this, as he put it, it, it I mean, it, it's an obsession with identity politics, cancel culture. Try, you know, Sean Hannity may be on the right wing of Republican politics, but it is these are issues that actually unite a lot of different factions within the Republican Party. And, and frankly, we're, we're very com- compelling arguments for Republicans in the last election, why Republicans overachieved 
in, in the Senate and the House and in, in talking about defunding the police, uh, talking about cancel culture, talking about, you know, trying to rewrite the, the history of the country, the 1619 Project. A lot of those staples have been the most effective arguments for Republicans to unite their party, even though uh, Trump, uh, you know, try to ignore the rea reality of the elephant in the room. Um, the problem, though, is that when you, you you can talk about defunding the police all you want, you know, this month we saw Trump supporters, a mob of Trump supporters, killing a policeman at the Capitol. Yeah, right? that would that would seem to be a off message. I mean, this is Republicans. I think believe that they can kind of wish the last few weeks away and try to move beyond Trump. But there is footage, there is, you know, evidence. And anytime Republicans try to talk about, you know, law enforcement, law and order, defunding the police, all Democrats need to do is point to the video of rioters that supported Trump mobbing the Capitol and, and injuring dozens of policemen and killing one. So, you know, this is the moment we're in where you're, you're seeing Republicans resort to the, 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 the most extremes of, of the Democratic left as a way to unite the party again. Right. But I don't know if it's that easy. I, I think that we've, we, 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 <laughs> January 6th was a seminal moment in our politics. I, I, I want to go back from beyond that. And I want to, and I want to come back to this. See, when, when I listen to Hannity, I mean, you, you know what the playbook is, but I'm, but I'm guessing that unless you are like really, really, really deep into MAGA, you're going to kind of roll your eyes, the re-education camps and all of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what's going to happen. I mean, it's one thing to say, Hey, these guys are spending a lot of money or, you know, they, they have some, you know, some crazy, uh, you know, social justice societies or whatever it is that they want to say. Um, Hannity seems to figure that let's use the, the scariest, most bizarre rhetoric. Okay. So before, before we we're done with the speaking of the alternative reality um maria bartiromo has been on fox business has been one of the worst uh purveyors of conspiracy theories of the big lie you know when we look back on the history of of, of january 6th as i've said over and over again you know the the big lie is the incitement i, I think it's a mistake and i know i've said this before but i want to keep emphasizing it's a mistake just to focus on the words spoken by the president and others on january 6th i think they did incite the riot there's no question about it but um the larger incitement was spreading the big lie that, that this election had been stolen there was a conspiracy and, and maria bartiromo is very much a part of this story Bizarrely enough, Fox News apparently is going to promote her now and let her try out for the seven o'clock hour on Fox News, move her over from Fox Business, which suggests to me that uh, the folks running Fox News uh, are uh, not chagrined at all about their their role in this disinformation. And, and, and here's here's Maria Bartiromo either this morning or last night. Let's play that. Well, security in the nation's capital is at an unprecedented level this morning ahead of the inauguration tomorrow. A new report says that some far right protesters have discussed posing as members of the National Guard to infiltrate the inauguration the way Democrats infiltrated uh, two weeks <sighs> ago and uh, put on MAGA clothing. Uh, Acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller says that there is no intelligence about a potential insider threat to the inauguration. Okay, that's just bullshit. I mean, I mean, this is this is like the 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 dead ender thing that those people who were very very clearly MAGA types. No, 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 they were really it was false false flag. It strikes me, Josh, that stuff that would have been confined to the Alex Jones conspiracy theorists, you know, the fever swamp. Now you're starting to hear it on places like Fox Business and Fox News. Well, you know what's really interesting 
in the last few weeks is that we're seeing one of the aggrieved parties uh, from, from all this misinformation, Domin- the Dominion uh, company, the, the mm-hmm. voting machines, are now suing the folks who are spouting off lies. And, you know, a lot of this is just, it's, it's very sad, but there's a market for this misinformation, disinformation, falsehoods. And uh, that we're, we're in this like broken system. It's not just uh, in the media, but it's in the world of politics where you have Republicans who, by the way, when you look at the exit polls on, on in November, 80, 81% of Americans and a majority of, of Trump supporters said the elections were free and fair. And mm-hmm. then after two months of Trump's Twitter, uh, right. you know, propaganda, uh, now you see where the Republican Party is. Uh, there is a market for for this stuff, and uh, that's why you see <laughs> some of the things you're seeing in the in the world of media. But the reality is, what, what's going to be fascinating is when you have Dominion suing some of the worst perpetrators of, of misinformation and putting a co- an actual cost uh, on 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 lies. It's going to be interesting to see how that changes the dynamic because a lot of this is just about money and about self-interest and about ratings and and and, and so on. Um, but if, if there's a real cost that that is on the other side, when you can you can't just uh, slander a, a company and make up lies uh, about it, and, and if uh, courts rule in, in Dominion's favor, uh, that that could be a moment where you start to see the winds shift a little bit. It, oh, it, I it, think so. Actually, this I'm really glad you brought this up because, you know, this is sort of a bad case scenario of how bad, you know, uh, how damaging disinformation can be the way that it's spread. That's the fact that you have an overwhelming majority now of Republicans who believe the election was stolen. And look, there were a lot of people involved in this. A lot of politicians were involved and were complicit in this. Uh, you know, Fox News, talk radio, a lot of those folks. So um, Mona Chern has a great piece about this. All of the folks that were involved in propagating the lie. But there's two developments that I think are interesting. I mean, obviously, the social media platforms pushing back, canceling some of these, not, I'm not going to use their word, uh, deplatforming uh, some of the worst actors, including Donald Trump. So there's a new study out showing that online misinformation declined by 73% after Donald Trump was removed from Twitter. I mean, it's, it's, that's kind of amazing that you remove Donald Trump from Twitter and 73% of the online misinformation goes away. So this raises the, you know, the, the, the possibility that m- maybe we can combat this. Yeah, I mean, you know, the worst guys are going to go off to Gab or, or, uh, or Parler. But at least you're not going to be, you know, snagging somebody on Pinterest or on YouTube, you know, who's you know, looking for looking for, you know, a colonic cleanse or something. And suddenly they find themselves in, you know, QAnon or something like that. So uh, is that a big deal? Uh, what, what, what's your reaction to that? That study about the 73 percent reduction in online misinformation? Oh, yeah. I mean, when, you sh- when you shut down the Trump's Twitter feed, it's bound to have. Uh, consequences, and I think in a positive way. You know, one thing it, it sort of reminds me of is when a lot of cities and states implemented smoking bans uh, yeah. in restaurants across the country and, uh, and, and bars and whatnot. And you know, there was a lot. There was a lot of principled libertarian pushback. You know, Mike. You know what Mike Bloomberg was doing. What, what we saw here in my home state of Virginia. That you know, it's just it's it's, it's against. It's against it's against the business's ability to, to set their own rules. It's it's an infringement of, of liberty. It's not going to do anything. People are just going to you know, smoke in, in in their own other businesses. But what, what we've seen in the last you know five years is that smoking has gone down. <laughs> you know the rate of smoking has gone down. I mean, in fact, it's actually had an, a, a significant impact in, in personal behavior. So you know, look, I, I, I think there's no doubt that these social media platforms 
could have been more responsible, could have set their own uh, more stringent regulations throughout the Trump presidency. And it's not a coincidence that as Trump is leaving office, they they choose, and then after January 6th, they choose to act responsibly. But, um, you know, they could have done this a long time ago. And I think uh, it, it's it's likely that it, it it's going to have a positive effect. It's going you know policing your platforms uh, and and not uh, allowing them to be a place where where, where extre- conspiracy theories can can flourish and you know threats of of violence can can really be be uh, be main, be mainstreamed. Um, you know it's going to have a positive impact. Yes, you'll see some some of the more crazy people going to to you know other platforms, but I, I think you can't underestimate the sheer depth. The, 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 the mainstream nature of how these QAnon and, and these conspiracies, conspiracy theories reach to the broader public. And, and it, right. that's not just the most, you know, radical folks. It's just people who were, you know, bored during the pandemic going on their phones and getting caught in this rabbit hole of, of propaganda, propaganda and, and, and conspiracy theories. And I think by regulating it in a way um, that they are, you know, I think it is going to have a at least in the, in, in the short term, a positive effect. It's, it's, it's rather dramatic how big the, the impact is. My, my only question is, uh, is how much of that is just Donald Trump and how much of that is the you know, tens of thousands of other uh, uh, you know, platforms that they, that, they, that they removed. This is, a, this, by the way, that we're talking about uh, some research by something called the Signal Labs, um, which is a San Francisco-based analytics firm, reported that conversations about election fraud dropped from 2.5 million mentions to all the way down to 688,000 mentions across several media sites. And again, it wasn't just uh, Trump. It was a lot of the allies and a lot of the QAnon folks that were were dropped off. We shouldn't have to mention this, Josh, but but I, 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 I find that it's necessary to keep repeating it because so many people on the right are playing the victim card and saying this is a massive censorship. This is Big Brother. This is Red China. We need to remember, remind people that these are private companies. These are private platforms. And that the First Amendment applies to state action, not to that of private action. It's also very ironic that conservatives have been you know, absolutely adamant in not having the government tell private entities what they must do or say, right? I mean, that's the whole, you know, baking the cake, uh, you know, the, 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 the baker you know, with the, the gay, uh, gay wedding cake. And, and yet you're, you're having people like Josh Hawley would at least sound like they want to take action to have the government compel these private companies to publish things that are untrue and perhaps dangerous. So this is this is this is about moderation, moderating the content rather than censoring the content. And and quite frankly, they have absolutely every right to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think we've kind of got sucked into this debate over free speech, whether this is free speech, not free speech, when I think the more apropos argument is where you draw the line, uh, where, where private companies should draw the line in terms of acceptable speech on their platforms. Because even, you know, even going back to the, the, the cancel culture arguments of, of, of the summer, I mean, the big, the real, the real problem that the left was facing wasn't that private company. I mean, it, well, you know, there were certain companies that were firing people or suspending people or, or you know, over, maybe overreaching their authority, but it was really that the punishment didn't fit the crime. That, that, I mean, that, it was ultimately, you know, people's heterodox opinions were being punished, but we're not talking right. about fomenting violence. We're not talking about, you know, literally, you know, supporting white, white, white nationalism. And, you know, I think ultimately, like you said, Charlie, these social media platforms, they have terms of service. They have the ability to moderate their platforms if they so chose. And, you know, it really is a matter of where, where do you draw the line? And that that's the the heated debate between both sides. Like, you know, what, what is the line you draw? And um, I think the left 
wants to draw it in a, in a way that, you know, censors or punishes opinion that was in, at one point in time, not that long ago, pretty mainstream. But, you know, I think the right wing view that you don't censor or you don't moderate, I should say, anything is also problematic because you see what happens when you have, you know, uh, people that adhere to QAnon and all kinds of crazy views, how how quickly that those types of views can metastasize when you don't. Uh, when private companies, when social media platforms don't do any regulation at all, no, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument that this can, this, this kind of power can be misused. I mean, I always feel the concentration of power ought to be regarded with skepticism, and 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 I am also um, sensitive to the slippery slope argument that you start by going after QAnon, and before before long you go after you know anyone who has a, a heterodox opinion on on any issue, you know, climate change. Uh, uh, police, community relations, any of those things. Those are legitimate concerns. But I also think that there is a fundamental principle of responsible speech that we do understand, especially when we are seeing, you know, the, the, the existential threat, the disinformation and calls for violence posed to our society. You know, our support for free speech is not a suicide pact. And and so I, I think that right now, I have, I have, you know, in the past, I've been kind of a free speech absolutist, but now I, I think it is, it, it, it is time to say, look, private entities should exercise levels of responsibility, personal responsibility, corporate responsibility. Okay. So that seems to be making a difference. I want to go back to your point because um, th- this may be another one of the game changers, something that actually does make a difference. The Dominion lawsuit against my pillow against a lot of these uh, these outlets um these people could be in a lot of trouble uh, this this could be millions of dollars and and this is we're not we're not in a world where you can just simply persuade people you should tell the truth that hammer of those lawsuits um I, I I think is is could have a dramatic effect. I mean, who knows you know a year from now when you buy a, a voting machine, you might get a free pillow. Yeah, I mean, they may, they may own, Dominion may own my pillow a year from now. You also saw like Newsmax and even some some sort of uh, secondary websites like uh, what was it called the American Thinker, American Thinker, putting out these apology, essentially apologies for you know for spouting out nonsense on their airwaves and and in the groveling apology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it was remarkable. And um, look that. The biggest fear I have for for society's long term health is our ability to to believe in actual truth. Like that, yes. you're seeing on left. I mean, this is a and, and and we're seeing it right now on the right. But uh, you know, we can talk about some of the stuff over the summer on the left. Some of the, we've talked about this on the same podcast that there's a postmodernism on the left mm-hmm. and the right that kind of feeds off of each other, and it, it all is. is it, it, it doesn't believe in truth. It doesn't believe in facts. It wants to create narrative and it wants to rely on power. To, to basically force people to 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 to, to believe their 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 preferred narratives, and I think you've got to to get our society back on the right track. You've just got to look at the lodestar of truth and fact and reporting and and all the 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 the, the things we've, we've traditionally relied on as a healthy democratic society. And uh, you know that no, that no. is a, a, I think it's a project that has to be done within both parties. It, it, you can't rely on uh, you know, Republicans criticizing Democrats or Democrats criticizing Republicans. It'll take leaders in, in, in both parties to stand up and say, we, we need to stand for reality and not crazy. Yeah, to their to their own teams. Okay, so these th- these three things, you know, the the on the online um, crackdown, um, the, the lawsuits against the worst actors, and then of course we're seeing this story. There's a, like a breaking news story in the Washington Post that lawmakers 
who objected to the election results, that would be what I call the Sedition Caucus, have been cut off from 20 of their 30 biggest corporate PAC donors. Hmm. The 147 Republican lawmakers who oppose certification of the presidential election this month have lost the support of 20 of their largest corporate backers as companies continue to grapple with the recent political turmoil. Meanwhile, nine among the 30 largest donors uh, have not pledged a specific action, according to a Washington Post survey. But, you know, pressure is building. And we know that conscience is that small voice telling politicians that uh, that their campaign funds might be cut off. Yeah, money matters. Uh, it, it actually is interesting when you look at the fundraising figures of the last two years. Republicans have actually been outraised by <laughs> Democrats pretty pretty handily, uh, even before <laughs> these 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 threats. Um, a lot of it is also the super PAC world, where uh, I, I think actually, frankly, the, the bigger donors, the, the people who can write big checks are, are the more important constituency in the financial world, because uh, that's where a lot of the money, the super PAC money went in funding ads in the biggest Senate and House races. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, money speaks. I mean, everyone's acting in their own self-interest. There's not sure. a lot of morality assume, rolling assume, around in politics. Assume and, that. Oh, and we, and when you cut off one element of self-interest, the ability to raise funds to, to run a credible campaign, it's going to have some some impact. OK, let, let, let's get to the deep thoughts. Let's let's be big thinkers here. OK, so start off with the Wall Street Journal editorial this morning. Um, what, what is what is the head? What is the headline on this uh, revisionist? Uh, they did their jobs well. Um, as the Trump presidency ends in the disgrace of the Capitol riot, an effort is already underway to erase everything in the last four years as disgraceful, too. That's a lie, a big lie, to borrow the cliche of the moment. It's not a cliche. It is a big lie. Uh, Donald Trump's profound character flaws need to be separated from what so many people in the administration accomplished for the country. And then there's another line. Uh, the Trump administration should be remembered for far more than its terrible final days. Now, this, I want to repeat that because that's where I want to go. The Trump administration should be remembered for far more than its terrible final days. Well, yes, of course. But Josh Kraschauer, how will the Trump administration be remembered? Because I know it's always it's always tempting to think of you know the most recent event, but it strikes me that a hundred years from now, when the name you know, Donald Trump comes up that this is what it's going to be remembered for, the way it left office. Well, let's just look at recent history. Uh, do we remember Richard Nixon for the state of the economy in mm. 1973, 1974? Uh, no. I mean, his, his legacy is Watergate. Do we know? Do we remember Andrew Johnson for the, you know, the, the, the foreign policy and, and the post-Civil War administration? No. I mean, the, 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 this, the reality is January what was it, what was What was the unemployment rate under James Buchanan? Hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean- the reality is the, the January 6th is going to be etched in stone uh, as part of the, the Trump legacy. And look, a lot of administration, there's good and bad in every administration, even even the worst presidential administrations. You know, the, the Abraham Accords is going to be a big accomplishment for, for, for Trump. I mean, you can talk about right. you can talk about like deregulation all, all, all you want. But the reality is in 20, 30 years, that's not how Trump will be remembered. We'll have plenty of economic and business cycles and from the, from from here on out. We'll have foreign policy accomplishments from from, from many presidents and, and failures. But the reality is that when you see the first uh, attack on the Capitol in, in, in over uh, you know since eighteen twelve, I guess uh, that's going to be the, that's going to be the lead uh, of how Trump is remembered. The fact that he fomented such uh, grievance and such misinformation and, and, and inspired almost a cult-like devotion uh, among his supporters, which led them to, to commit unthinkable acts. 
that that's going to be what we remember Trump for. Um, it doesn't mean that, he did, that there weren't accomplishments by his administration. There are accomplishments in every administration. Well, and it doesn't mean that there weren't other disgraceful things over the last four years as well. But but you're right. I mean, this there's it's there's no way around it because the second impeachment, I think one of the the values of it, whatever happens, is that it places this marker. Um, and that you have to mention in, you know, any, any summary of the Trump administration that he's a one term president uh, who was impeached twice um, for, for for his actions, refused to concede and spent his last couple of months in office trying to overturn the results of the election, refused to even attend the inauguration of his successor. I mean, that's part of the narrative. And there's there's no way around that, which is remarkable because you and I have lived through this incredibly tumultuous four years. We think, oh, my God, this is big. This is extraordinary. This is going to change things. OK, well, this is is one of the you know significant moments of this administration. And all of that, I think, is pushed down by what has just happened in the last six to eight weeks, maybe the last two or three weeks. Well, I also think, Charlie, that what what happens in the next 10 years is going to define how we look at the Trump administration's legacy. Was this a four-year blip in, in history? Mm-hmm. And will we go back to a sense of normality? Will, will you know, the next president president that succeeds Joe Biden go and attend his, you know, the, 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 you know, will Biden attend his successor's inauguration? Will we see the norms that Trump blew through over the last four years restored and, and built up again? Um, we don't know the answers. I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, historians and analysts who think that the Trump has sort of set a precedent for bad behavior from future presidents and future administrations. I'm not so sure of that, but I mean, I, I and, and I think Biden being sort of the pragmatist and the institutionalist in office is an important uh, reset. It, it was important we elected a Biden rather than a Bernie, because I think he does want to restore a lot of the institutional norms that, that, that have been uh, gutted in the last four years. But I mean, I think how we look at Trump 10 years from now will depend on how future administrations handle um, and react to the last four years. You know, and there's always a revisionism that takes place after a president uh, leaves office. I think, you know, most famously, Jimmy Carter, who uh, I think was at the time regarded as a somewhat weak president, a flawed president, but had this remarkable post-presidency. It's hard to imagine a post-presidency of Donald Trump that is going to completely uh, turn around his, his image. In fact, he's going to be the first, well, not the first, but at least in, in, in recent political history, the first completely pariah ex-president. Even Richard Nixon managed not to be a complete pariah with his post-presidency, but um, I, I think it's hard to imagine Trump turning it around, um, especially, especially honestly, you know, if, 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 as reported, he completely and totally believes that uh, this election was stolen from him, then he's going to go off into a sulking exile uh, where he's going to stew with his bitterness. He's going to be sitting there watching television, uh, you know, I don't know, tweeting on Parler or whatever you do on Parler. Um, so it, it, it's it's kind of hard for me to imagine that he's not going to be a statesman. He's not going to be a philanthropist. He's not. What? What is he going to do? Well, we also don't know, Charlie, how long lasting the Republican Party's voters ties to Trump will last. Um, you know, I, th- that's actually been sort of a running discussion on the on this sure. podcast. Very much so. I, I was more sanguine. I, I actually thought this is before January 6th. I thought being a, a former president, not having the power of the, the office would automatically uh, kind of diminish his influence within the party. Uh, I, I think I may have been. I mean, I think January 6th show, showed 
the rot was very, very deep. That that the 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 degree to which even your rank average rank and file Republican who doesn't really, you know, subscribe to any of the of the craziness, you know, they they believe that the election may have been stolen. Like the rot of Trump's lies ran deeper, I think, than even I I, I anticipated. But I, you know, I, weirdly, the fact that you had this crisis moment um, where Republicans are now breaking from the president and you're even looking at some public polls, public opinion polls showing, you know, his support within the party dipping 10, 20 points in the last few weeks. You know, I, I think it's more likely now that Trump is, is, is more discredited even within the party, that you won't see a lot of Republicans looking to tie themselves to Trump running for future office perhaps outside of the deepest red districts and states. And yet, what is more likely that the Republican Party will purge itself of the QAnon conspiracy sedition caucus nut jobs, or that the Republican Party will purge out the people like Liz Cheney and uh, the member of the Republican member of the Board of Canvassing in Michigan or the governor of Georgia, the guys that did the right thing? Because I'm looking around the country right now. And seeing there's going to be, you know, primary challenges against Liz Cheney, probably uh, uh, moves to remove her uh, from her, the chairman of the, of the caucus in Arizona. They are censuring uh, Cindy McCain and the Governor Ducey. Uh, so, uh, you know, in a coin flip, I think it's more likely that they're going to purge the people who did who stood up against Trump than the Lauren Bobbitts and Marjorie Taylor Greens and Paul Gosar's of the Republican Party. Yeah, I think you've laid out the biggest political test over the next two years. Is it more likely that Republicans expel some of the most extreme members who uh, have ties to, to, to these groups like QAnon? Yeah. Or is it more likely that someone like Liz Cheney or, or Peter Mayer, uh, the, the, the representative yeah. from Michigan, end up losing primaries in, in two years? I, I think you're right. I think that Right now, if the elections were held today, Liz Cheney would lose a primary in Wyoming. Peter Mayer would lose a primary in Michigan. Um, but I also think that two years is a lifetime in politics. And there is a, a mood, uh, and this is, Jonathan Last has written quite a bit about this mm-hmm. in the bulwark, whether you believe the institutionalists have the most influence or whether the grassroots, the voters, have, have the most influence. Um, you know, I think the question is, do Republicans move on from Trump if he's not constantly tweeting, if, if he's he's less of a player in, in, in the post uh, presidential world? Uh, you know, I, I, I think the in these red states and red districts like Wyoming is one of the most Republican states in the country. Liz Cheney's in serious trouble in a primary. On the other hand, there are a lot of swing or even Republican leaning states and districts where Trump's latest uh, where Trump has seen his numbers collapse, and and I don't I, his legacy is going to be much more negative. And I, Ryan Costello is is an interesting figure because he represents the state of Pennsylvania, still a swing state. Uh, the Republican Party in Pennsylvania has evolved from being uh, a, a suburban party to a rural small town party, where where Trump is is very very popular. Uh, so I mean, the I, like watching Ryan Costello if he decides to run for the Senate. And, and see if he can make it out of a primary in Pennsylvania. I think that'll be an interesting test because Republicans didn't win; they couldn't win Georgia before January sixth. They lost two very winnable seats in Georgia before the riots because simply Trump denied the, the the legitimate election results. It's only gotten worse since then. So you know, Republicans, they in a way they they they, they can't win with him. They can't win without him. But now the cost of 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 campaigning alongside Trump is a lot more severe, a lot more significant. And, you know, I, I think they're going to muddle through these next two years trying to figure out some middle way, but it's not going to be easy. 
so we, things things have moved so quickly that that some major developments I think have kind of, kind of almost gotten lost. It's been how many weeks has it been? Has it been? It's Tuesday, right? I've lost track here. It's just Tuesday. So was it three weeks ago today that uh, that we had the Georgia runoffs? Yeah, I mean, oh, it, it, it January fifth. So almost about two weeks. Two weeks away. Two weeks. No, it was two weeks ago. Yeah, it's hard to believe. It feels like it feels like years ago, right? But, but it, that is well, crazy. Well, you know, you know, that 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 goes to show that like oh, two years in politics, and you, oh, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that that a lot of things are going to happen in the next year. Biden's going to control the agenda. I mean, we we, don't, we can't predict how no. the Republican Party is going to evolve because we there's just a lot of unknown unknowns. Okay, so th- that that was a tr- I was surprised by that. I, w- I will admit that. So, you, if you were, you know, if I had to bet two weeks ago, uh, right right now, I would have said the Republicans are going to win both of those seats, and the Republicans are going to control the Senate, and they're just going to make Joe Biden's life completely miserable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, that didn't happen. Your shorthand version before, because I want to, I want to, you know, move on from this. But your shorthand version, why? Uh, Democrats won in Georgia. Why Republicans lost unlosable seats in Georgia in a runoff? Well, I, I think the most fundamental lesson is when your party is divided, you lose elections. I mean that that that's just the simple lesson. And McConnell and and, and Republican strategists wanted to keep the Kraken in coalition with with the more traditional Republicans, but it, it came at a severe cost because it forced Kelly Leffler to to publicly proclaim she wanted to throw out the election results in Georgia the night before the vote. And, and that had a cost. Um, it had a cost in her election. It had a cost, you know, politically in what happened the day after. You know, David Perdue, who was a, you know, a business guy, tr- transformed into a Trumpist. And that was costly a- a- as well. When you look at the numbers, Charlie, just really quickly, uh, two things happened to the Republican Party in Georgia. Their voters didn't show up in the right. rural, most Trumpy parts of the state. That There was a Notable drop off, especially in North Georgia, where the most conservative voters live. And there was a small but perceptible decline in support for both Purdue and Leffler in the suburbs, in the Cobb County and in, in, in the wealthier suburban areas that had voted for Purdue and voted for Republicans down ballot in November. But this Trump craziness was simply too much for them, for enough of them to stomach. And a few of them, a small, small critical mass of them moved to vote Democratic in January. Uh, that, that's that's what you're going to see across the country, Charlie, if, if, right. if they don't purge themselves of, of the Trump Trump taint. Well, this is what was so extraordinary because n- normally uh, Republicans in Georgia do extremely well because of the turnout in a, in a runoff. So this goes to the question of what happens in the midterms. The conventional wisdom is always that the party out of power does very, very well in the midterms. But I wonder whether or not the formula has been scrambled. Let me just think about Wisconsin here. Um, in, in, in Wisconsin, traditionally before the last couple of cycles, um, Democrats did very, very well in the big turnout general elections and Republicans did very well in the lower turnout midterm elections. So, um, you know, m- much of the Republican sweep took place in the off-year elections. But now you're seeing these massive turnouts among Democrats that have changed the formula. And if you have any weakness at all with the Republicans, you see what in, in Wisconsin, it's, it's really very much the same story. You had, you know, huge turnouts of the Republican, I'm sorry, of the Democratic base 
in Wisconsin, erosion in the suburbs, and you know, Donald Trump and the other Republicans just simply weren't able to overcome it. So 2018, Scott Walker is ousted as governor. Um, Tammy Baldwin, the incumbent Democratic senator, wins by double digits. 2016, Donald Trump loses Wisconsin. So you go to 2022, and I think the assumption has been that this is going to be a really, really good year for for the Republicans. But if Ron Johnson runs for re-election as senator, he's got this national target on his back. It becomes a nationalized election. And if I'm a Republican in Wisconsin, you know, asterisk, um, I have to be thinking that, well, are, you know, are we going to see a completely new turnout model if we stay divided and the Democrats stay that motivated, then maybe the off-year election in states like Wisconsin are not going to be, uh, you know, are not going to be what the conventional wisdom suggests. Yeah, Charlie. Usually when a party is out of power, they benefit in the, in the first midterm election of, of the opposing president. But there are some notable uh, red flags or exceptions to, to that rule. Um, and you noted one of them. Used to be Republicans would rely on sort of the the, the, the civic minded suburban voters who who would they, they they leaned Republican they would show up in midterm elections and they gave Republicans a, a midterm boost compared to presidential elections in recent years. Now where the Republican Party is predominantly uh, dominant, you know the, the the voters are predominantly in small towns and rural areas. Uh, they they're they they are tied to Trump. They're less likely to show up when he's not on the ballot. So there's that big caveat. Uh, Trump remaining in the background. I mean, we'll see how much of a factor Trump plays in the post-presidency, but he's still going to be a factor to turn out Democrats, I, I believe. And, and right. so the notion that Democrats are going to be, you know, disillusioned or, or they're not going to show up like they do in out of power. I'm not sure if that dynamic holds. And and again, the Repu- most importantly, and this is this is the biggest, biggest factor. The Republican Party is likely going to be in the middle of a civil war in the next couple of years where the MAGA faction is going to go uh, crazy over Republicans who voted to certify the election, who don't uh, pledge their loyalty to Trump, even out of office. So you may you may not just see primary challenges against someone like Liz Cheney, but you could see primary challenges against senators like Rob Portman or John Thune in the Senate. You could see you have a lot, a lot of open seats in the Senate that are very important. Uh, races, North Carolina and Pennsylvania, first and foremost. So like, Liz, um, excuse me, uh, Donald Trump's daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, sounds like she wants to run for the Senate in North Carolina. There's already a well-known Republican uh, former congressman that's in that race. There are going to be literally Trump family members running against main, more mainstream Republicans. And that is going to be a messy, messy battle that's not going to be easy to paper over once you head to the November general election. And, no, so, and, and these are important, right? These, these are going to be the races that determine the next uh, Senate majority. So I, I think you probably have already touched on this, um, but but your piece in the National Journal this week that the riots will cost the GOP their nas- uh, their uh, their natural advantage in, in 2022. Um, you know, with, with the caveat, the two years is, is, a, is a lifetime. So just walk me through it. Is it just a law and order issue that they've taken away? From um, the, uh, the the Republicans that, that the Republicans are going to have a harder time, um, you know, running as the party that we back the blue after the riots, or or has it changed the dynamic in some other way that will affect the the midterms? Well, uh, number one, the Republican Party used to be the party of stability, of of sanity, of good governance, of fiscal yeah. prudence, right? I mean, that that's the party that you you belong to. It's the one that a lot of suburban voters once associated with. And that's now long. It was gone before January 6th. But, you know, having a bunch of 
MAGA uh, hat wearing mobsters heading to the Capitol and and vandalizing the place and, mur- and murdering and injuring uh, police officers, that brand is, I think, maybe not permanently tarnished, but it, it's forever changed. And that is going to be on the minds of a lot of voters, especially the suburban uh, voters that Republicans do need to make inroads with in the next election. Yeah, but I also think that, but like I said before, there's going to be a a divide, a civil war of sorts within the Republican Party as well. I I don't think that it's going to be easy to paper over the differences at this point now that Trump is out of power, now that this coalition of convenience is no longer, you know, McConnell has no need for Trump anymore. And and Trump has no need to protect uh, Republicans to keep himself, you know, with a with a congressional Republican majority. So, I mean, there's going to be knives out uh, on both sides of the Republican. Republican uh, Party, and, and that's going to get ugly, and, and that's going to just like in Georgia, the Republican divisions uh, that were less less that were less out in the open uh, that cost Republicans these two Senate seats in Georgia. I think you could see a lot of uh, more more Democratic states, more friendly states for Democrats, become uh, much more uh, you know, much more winnable in these races, like in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, if, if these if these divisions continue in the next two years. Well, well and there's also the, the middle, the, the matter of political hygiene, that if you want to be a successful party, you need to do something about the, 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 the your toxic elements. And, and, the, and the worst thing that could happen for the Republican Party right now is for the Marjorie Taylor Greens um, to become the face of the party. I thought Ben Sass's piece in The Atlantic was very interesting, sort of drawing a line saying, look, we're going to we're going to have this moment of choosing here. You know, we're going to either be the party of QAnon and crazy and the Proud Boys and all of this stuff, or we're going to return to be a party of Sam and that's going to require a fight. And I don't know that the Republican Party right now has the will to purge, cleanse, weed itself of uh, of, of the nut jobs. And I don't think that the worst is over. Um, I don't, I, and I've talked about this on my podcast for, for some time. I think that people underestimate how deeply many of the MAGA folks believed that Donald Trump was going to win this election and that each one of these dates is a huge is a huge shock and disillusion for them. There are still folks out there, I don't know how many, who think that, I don't know, that, that tomorrow's going to be the big day, that he's going to stay. He's not. But but you think about, I, was, I actually had a kind of a snarky tweet about all of this, which is actually snarky, but also substantive. You and I both have watched, you know, how the Maggie universe has reacted to the election, that they were absolutely convinced early on, remember, that the Supreme Court justices that Donald Trump had uh, had named were going to save him. They just were absolutely counting on them to do it, and that didn't happen. And then they were, they were counting on these Republican legislatures to step up, and that didn't happen. And then a lot of them thought it was going to be the Kraken that was going to, somehow there was going to be all this, this evidence of this you know, terrible fraud, that didn't happen. You know, and then it gets more and more desperate with, you know, the president trying to get secretaries of state to overturn the election. And, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago, we had much of the Republican Party honestly believe that Mike Pence was going to unilaterally determine the outcome of the election, that Mike Pence was going to be the savior. And that didn't happen. And then we got to this point where and and, and I, people are going to think I'm exaggerating this. There's an undertow to a lot of uh, a, a lot of the sort of right wing memes you 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 see it from uh, you know people like uh, like like Kurt Schlichter's of the world which is that you know you don't want a civil war because we're the tough guys we have all the guns i think trump at one point said you know we we have all the guys with the, with, with the guns and now they're kind of at least for the moment they're going oh shit these guys have tanks and drones and uh, 
and bigger guns than we do. So I, I just don't know how this is going to play out. But um, the, the, the one through line is that they get increasingly unhinged and, um, and extreme in what they're prepared to do. And so I don't think that this ends tomorrow. Well, let's hope. Let's hope. It, 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 I mean, I think this is where the social media platforms really come into play because don't underestimate the impact of people being home for a year, stuck in their houses, staring at their phones, and, 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 and literally, you know, it, it, it's. I think that Trump has been the the arsonist in chief, lighting matches where there was a lot of fuel uh, already existent. But you know, when you have a bunch of people losing their jobs, being at home, staring at phones where you get the most extreme content pushed to you by, by the social media platforms, that created this perfect scenario, this perfect storm. I, 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 I am worried about the next six months. You know, I, I, I do think that we're in a very, very volatile time in our, in our country's history. Let's hope that uh, the, the leaders, the institutions get their act together and, and work to, to kind of tamp down on the on, on, on the flames but you know I, I do think that Trump is losing his political oxygen you no know, Twitter mm-hmm. Twitter shutting his feed down was was the the, the, the capstone to that but you know he, he just I, I think we'll see him getting less attention a lot less attention out of office uh, you know I gotta and that's t- gonna I, have a big role in, 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 in I am surprised I am surprised I'm genuinely surprised how effective that sh- that shutdown was I mean the man has the biggest bully pulpit in the world. And yet his spokesmen are out there going, he just can't get his message up because he's not on Twitter. Really? Seriously? But apparently in his head, he can't figure out how to do this. He can't figure out how to do what he did without that platform. So um, I would have said, okay, yeah, you shut him down. He's just going to do something else. He's going to go somewhere else. I mean, he's the president. You can't shut him up. But apparently it's been effective. Josh Gratchauer, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It is going to be an it's been an amazing two weeks. I think this week is It's going to be amazing as well. And it's only Tuesday. So thanks for coming back on the podcast, Josh. Thanks, Charlie. Great to be on. And thank you for uh, joining me on this uh, this Bulwark podcast, the final podcast of the full day of the Trump presidency. I'm I'm guessing that we'll have a podcast. Well, I know we'll have a podcast tomorrow. So will will that be the final day of the Trump presidency? You'll have to tune in. Uh, We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.